please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 17. Please read with me the verses in bold. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bathshebeth, a Tachemonite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And the three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful that you're joining us, whether in the room or online. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Uh, you don't have to look very far in the Bible before you hit those uh, list of unpronounceable names. And by the way, that's uh, one of our membership tests, uh, <laughs> knowing how to pronounce it and also spelling it. You get extra credit if you can spell it correctly. But you'll find them in uh, genealogies, uh, again, list of unpronounceable names, starting from the book of Genesis. Into the New Testament, I think, um, uh, Sarah, you may have done a better job than the, uh, the announcers for the Winter Olympics. <laughs> I know the, uh, there are international athletes, all sorts of unpronounceable names, but they are, are difficult because they are names of a different culture and of a different place and a different time. Well, what we find in 2 Samuel 23 is a list of these unpronounceable names, and it's quite a list. There are names of the mighty men of valor, David's mighty men. It's like the names you would find in Washington, D.C., Memorials and walls of names of war veterans who fought bravely for this country. The list that we're looking at, it's a shortened list, um, again, part of a larger one that includes uh, 37 other names. Names of, uh, of soldiers and perhaps even unnamed soldiers, uh, ones we may be familiar with 
and others whom we have the faintest clue. Well, when I was in quarantine, in the early parts of this year, I spent uh, time catching up on my Avengers. Uh, Avengers movies and storyline. Now, if you're not familiar with the Avengers, uh, these are fictional superheroes uh, that appear in American comic books published by Marvel Comics. You might recognize names like Iron Man or Captain America or the Hulk. These superheroes usually operate independently to fight formidable foes, but more recently have come together to form an all-star ensemble cast. Now, the opening verses of our text this morning seem to come right out of an Avengers movie. That's how I see it. Each of these warriors, these seemingly fictitious superheroes, destroy their enemies at an alarming rate by the tens and by the hundreds, it tells us. Their feats don't seem real. Out of this world type of unreal. Now, listen to these stories. Jasheb Bashebeth, <laughs> I'm having a hard time as well, a uh, Tachmanite. He was a chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 that he killed at one time. I don't know. Sounds like an Avengers movie. <laughs> Eleazar in verses 9 through 10, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of battle withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. I mean, he was fighting so hard, the Bible tells us that again, his hand was, was, uh, was stuck to the sword. And that's uh, sweat, I'm sure, and blood, and, uh, and all sorts of gunk that's on the sword, that it's again, it's attached there to the sword. Verses 11 and 12, Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite, the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, and there was a plot of a ground, of full, a ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it. He defended the plots of land, of lentils, and struck down the Philistines. Now, you know what I mean. It sounds like the, the Avengers. Well, we are in this, this epilogue. It's the last part of the, for these two books, First and Second Samuel. The author uses this last section, uh, chapters 21 through 24, as a conclusion to what happened in the life of David. When you read through it, it seems like a hodgepodge. It seems like a grab bag of stories that seem to have been tacked on to the ending. It seems like that when you read it. There's David's Thanksgiving prayer. There's David's last words. There's a census and a census story. And then there's this list, a list of wartime heroes. It's strange because through 20 chapters, right, of 2 Samuel and then the, the chapter or the, the book of 1 Samuel all has this, this beautiful narrative that goes in a, a beautiful narrative, I mean, beautiful storyline that uh, comes in chronological order. And all of a sudden in chapter 21, it's all jumbled. It seems to go backwards in time. The chapter that we're looking at this morning in chapter 23 goes back to probably uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. It, goes backwards in time when, before David was a king, and he's running away from King Saul. But before we get too far down this list, I want to do a couple of things. I want to make three observations. The first one I'll make early on in the text, and I'll make the last two at the very end. 
But I think the author doesn't want us to miss the ultimate warrior. The preeminent victor in all of this, it's God himself. Yes, these verses describe an elite group of fighters, the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers, the Green Berets of David's army. We might be tempted to think that these descriptions are given of their great accomplishments in praise of their courage and their bravery in battle, but this would be wrong. In verse 9, again, there's these three mighty men. And then in verse 10, really uh, kind of hidden in the text there, in verse 10 it says, He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And then again in verse 11, and next to him was Shammah, again, the son of Agi, the Herorite. And then verse 12, it seems to be tucked there as if to say you can't miss it. He took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord wrote the great victory. You know, again, it's easy to see the the mighty men of valor, there are 37 of them in all. I think if you read from verse 8 all the way to the end of chapter 23, there's 37 names in all. And there are names that we cannot pronounce. There's, there are names of, uh, of men and who we have very little understanding or knowledge of. But again, that's intentional. God wants to include the names, but again, he doesn't want us to miss the other facts in verse 10 and also in verse 12. It's God who works a great victory. This is the secret behind it all. The Lord is the one who worked a great victory. And all this is not to negate the courage and valor of David's warriors. They certainly displayed all of that and more. And yet behind such fortitude and accomplishment and achievement stands the fact that the victory is always God's gift. It's always Yahweh's gift. It's always Yahweh's enabling of, of men to do what he wants. He used these men to bring about a great salvation. And that's the first observation, I think. It's, it's the Lord is the one who works the great victory. It's remembering the gifts given to us are, are, are by God himself. God is the one who, who gives them to us. A very simple application so again, whenever we look at our great accomplishments or achievements in life, and we have to remember, as the text tells us, it's the Lord who brings it about. It's the Lord who gives, and it's the Lord who takes away. It's the Lord who gives us our might. It's the Lord who gives us our courage. It's the Lord who gives us our faith. It's God who brings about a great salvation because he enables it. He is the one who, who gives it. The accounts that we just observed of the first three of David's mighty men are concise. Their life encapsulated in a brief sentence describing the great exploits. But of the following men, again, as we read from verse 13 and on, again, there are no names given, just a story of their devotion to the king. I make two other observations from this text. And three of the 30 men went down and came about at harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, and that's how we know it's probably uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, when he's fighting the Philistines. And again, it says, now David's men were not unwilling draftees who were there just to fulfill their duty. They were willing volunteers who served out of devotion to David. 
they had a great love for David. These men, list of 37, those named and unnamed, they were devoted to David. You know, it's easy for us to think about, especially in our culture, to think about a job description. What do I need to do for my job in order to be paid? But when we look at the mighty men of David, they're not looking at a job description. What does it mean to be a mighty warrior? They were devoted to their king. They were loyal to to David. They were not unwilling draftees. They were there to serve out of devotion to David. They had a great love for David. And the incident described in these verses could have occurred before uh, David became king while he was still fleeing Saul. And this is where David located after he fled from Gath. It is where a number of his kinsmen joined him along with others who were out of favor with Saul. And at some point in time, David and his men were in this cave while they were at war with the Philistines. Uh, again, five or six miles southwest of Jerusalem. And they were, uh, they were camped there. Perhaps uh, as they were running out of water, David was thirsty he verbalizes what, he, he, uh, what was meant only as a wish, if only he could have a drink from that well in Bethlehem. It's a feeling of nostalgia. It takes you back in time, doesn't it? You know, you ever have those moments when you're thinking about a certain food or a certain drink and you think about that time as a kid? You drank it. You know, you ever think about those places that you've been to that bring back fond memories and think, only if I was there. And that's David on a hot summer day, thirsty and thinking about that place he was, that place where he was in Bethlehem, that place which, which God said Bethlehem would be that place where he would reign. The wells that were there in the front at the gates, uh, it's just a drink from that water. It's just a drink from that well. And he's thinking about it. And he kind of mutters it under his breath, only meant as a wish, if you could have a drink from that well in Bethlehem. This feeling of nostalgia. Some of his men could not help but overhear what David said. It was certainly not a command. David probably would not have uh, even verbalized his desire if he had known that these men, these three unnamed men, would risk their lives to fulfill it. If he mentions his craving, it's water from a well in the front of the gates of Bethlehem. And like lovers, for a hint, for a gift of their beloved, these three men slip away and bring this precious gift to David. The men did it. They brought water from the well in front of the gates of Bethlehem, the city, in possession of the Philistines. David's wish was their command. David just expressed the thought, and these men did it. What you will see, I think, throughout the Old Testament, and what you will see in the book of 2 Samuel, and what you will see in particular in chapter 9, is this word, kesed. I know it's a funny word. It's a, a word that in the English is spelled H-E-S-E-D, but it's really a hard Sound, if you can say it with one another without spitting on each other, it's the word chesed. Yeah, it's a, it's a word, it's a Hebrew word that means loving kindness. And that's how a lot of translators will translate that word chesed. 
I have a, a friend who has a son named uh, Hesed, and I know he, when he was really small, uh, he's probably grown up now, but uh, kids would come up to him and say, uh, hi, Hesed, and he'd say, no, 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 my name is Hesed. You know, uh, but uh, this word Hesed, right, it's a, it's a loving kindness of God, the steadfast love of God. That's how translators translate it, but again, scholars of the, of the Bible will say there's no real way of translating this word uh, because it's, it's filled with all, all sorts of definition and, and meaning, uh, steadfast love or loving kindness or mercy or loyalty. It's a Hebrew word for covenant faithfulness. Again, we see this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9 of David and, and his friendship with Jonathan. It's a word for loyalty. It's a word used of God's covenant between himself and his people, about God's unconditional and unfailing love for Israel. God's loving kindness is that sure love which will not let Israel go. Again, Israel's per persistent, uh, again, their persistent waywardness could never destroy God's unfailing love. Though, if, though Israel was faithless, God remained faithful. This is Hesed. It's the loving kindness of God, undeserved on Israel's part. Let me just point to you three. Again, there's uh, numerous examples in the Old Testament. Let me just point to you three. Israel, uh, Isaiah 50, 54, verse 8. The psalmist writes, In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. This is God speaking to Israel. But with an everlasting Hesed, I will have compassion on you. Isaiah 54, verse 10, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my Hesed will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Lamentations chapter 3, The Lord's Hesed indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. Hesed refers primarily to mutual and reciprocal rights and obligations between parties of a relationship, especially uh, Yahweh and Israel. But Hesed is not only a matter of obligation, but also of generosity. Not only a matter of loyalty, but also of mercy. Hesed implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship above the rule of law. It is not a word that describes kindness. It's not a word to, to describe a kind deeds. The theological importance of a word like chesed is that it stands more than any other word for the attitude with, with which both parties to a covenant ought to maintain towards one another. It's a word used elsewhere between two parties, brothers in covenant relationship with one another. It's the combination of love and loyalty. One commentator, Adele Raff Davis, which I've loved his, his book, he defines a chesed this way. Chesed often has that flavor. It is not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. It's loyalty to the point of devotion. You may know people like this. All of us can relate to people who sacrifice without being asked. They do it even before you say a word. These men, we don't know the details, but they broke into the city 
They encountered the Philistines, went to the well, and fought their way out and brought back a canteen of water. What I believe the writer of 2 Samuel is doing is showing us what chesed looks like. Same word that is used between David and his friend Jonathan in chapter 9. Used three times there and certainly exemplified in this story. What you have here is zeal. What you have here is enthusiasm. Can you imagine what the three men were thinking? I'm sure it's the same feeling that my wife gets when, we, when she picks out presents for those she loves. Will there be a smile on their faces when they unwrap the gift? How will the recipient respond when they open the present that they had in mind when it was purchased? There was a time when Karen and I were dating. I was preaching and leading on a Sunday evening for a parrot church ministry in L.A. And because of this, I would miss out on, I don't know if I should say it or not, uh, game seven <laughs> in 2000 of the Lakers versus the Portland Trailblazers. I don't know if you know that, that uh, particular series or not, but I think Portland was up by 25, 28 points, something like that in the third quarter. Um, I missed it. I missed the whole thing because I was at uh, a parachurch uh, service meeting on Sunday night, and my wife brought a TV with a, back, back then, a built-in VCR. She was carrying this heavy TV uh, after our service had ended. She said, you got to watch this game. I recorded it so you can watch it. You know, it's uh, this type of, uh, type of giving spirit that you know what the other is thinking even before they, they ask you. And these are the mighty men of David. And again, he just utters something under his, his breath, and they already know. They go out and fight the Philistines for a cup of water. And they bring it back. I think that's what the men are thinking. They were willing to do anything. They were willing to do anything to risk their lives For water. For water. Just for water from a well. I mean, I can only imagine what people are thinking as they look at these men. I mean, imagine if they were your children. Imagine if it was your spouse or your parents. They risked their life for water? Question mark? That seems extreme. It seems like fanaticism. I mean, it seems like it's over the top. A little too much, don't you think? I think. Now, I look at this story, and I see this great courage, and I... I just, I don't know if it were my own children, if I would ask that for a drink of water. Hard enough as it is with my kids, uh, I'm upstairs, my kids are downstairs, like, hey, can you get me a cup of water? <laughs> no, but I wouldn't. I would never put my children at risk. I would never put my friends at risk or my family at risk. 
ever. I mean, it seems excessive. And I cannot point out this fact enough that it just seems over the top and unnecessary. Why would they do it? Risk their lives to get, a, to get water from a well that probably in, in, in all cases tastes just the same as the water that they had around them. So what does David do? He would not drink it. David poured the water on the ground. You can imagine these three men, their jaws drop as David pours their, their hard-fought efforts on the ground. And it looks like from the surface to be, uh, to, looks like from the surface to be ungrateful, to be insulting. They had risked their lives, and yet David pours out their offering on the ground. And listen to what David says. In verse 17, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink, shall I drink from the blood of men who went to risk their lives? In essence, David says, this act of devotion is too great. I don't deserve it. This act of devotion is only worthy of being offered to the Lord. Yes, you can misinterpret David, but again here, he's telling us, that this act of faithfulness on the part of these men can only be offered to God. They were serving the Lord, and David saw it as a pledge. And, the, and, the, and again, the men of David, they loved David this much that they would risk their life for him. This is not a standalone story in the Old Testament. It appears again in the New Two days after the Passover, Jesus was with remarkable company. You may remember that he was with Simon the leper. And again, a woman comes to this home with her alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she breaks the thin neck of the flask. She pours a generous portion on the head of Jesus, the hair of Jesus, and, and pours it on his feet. For she knew that, David, uh, for she knew that Jesus was going to die and that she was preparing him for burial. And what's significant about this is that, the, again, the balming came after a person died, but Mary was displaying to Jesus, or this woman, maybe this unknown woman, was, was displaying to Jesus how, uh, how much she loved him while he was still alive. Have you asked yourself why she would do such a thing? Why would you waste uh, a year's worth of wages on one event? on the washing of Jesus' hair and his, and his feet. In Luke 7, 47, it says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, though her sins are many, I'm sorry, her many sins have been forgiven. I think I, I'm not sure I'm reading, I'm not even sure I'm reading it right here. It says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And what it boils down to for this sinful woman was that she served because it was a response out of a grateful heart. The perfume was costly, but she gave it to Jesus. And there were others in the room, Judas particularly, who was calculating the waste. Who was it that said, that's fanatical. That's over the top. That's a little extreme, isn't it? Beware if you ever find yourself sympathetic to Judas. She poured the perfume over his head and wiped the, 
feet of wipe the uh, uh, the feet of Jesus. A remarkable story. And again, you know as you read through this, it's not a story about practicality. And so much in the church, I think, I know I, I've, I confess that I'm a person who comes in and thinking, uh, you know, the, the Christian life needs to be balanced. You know, everything in moderation, right? It's just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We talk about boundaries and we make sure that we stay within our boundaries. And I love this book uh, by Swenson called uh, Living in the Mar- uh, Living. Um, uh, shoot, I don't remember the name of the title. <laughs> uh, but what, what we do to live outside uh, or inside the margins. Um, my confession, I think, is that I've lived this Christian life in moderation and balance, and boundaries. Whoever said that our love for Jesus should be in moderation, or our love for Jesus should be within the margins, and don't ask me too much. God, ask me what I can do, and I I will do those things. How often have we tried to put margins on devotion? God, you can't ask everything from me. God, I will give you my 10% and that's it. How can we be balanced about our devotion to Jesus? How can we be moderate in our devotion to God? And these men, what they show us is that, again, they were willing to do anything because they loved Jesus. They loved the king. I apologize. They loved King. They loved David. They were willing to do anything for the king, even if it was a cup of water. As I mentioned, there's two observations uh, here. I made one in the very beginning about how this is all about God. And number two, I think this is true. If these men could fetch David water from the well, and the faithfulness of God and the promises of God and his faithful keeping of the covenant must be true. As much as we try to keep the covenants, he does more. The definition of hesed, right? The definition of, of loving kindness or loyal love is that as, as much as we try to be loyal to Jesus, Jesus is more loyal to us As much as we try to obey whatever he says, he's faithful to us, even when we are faithless. If these men could fetch him water from the well, then I have to believe that the faithfulness of God and the promises of God and the covenant-keeping God must be true. Number three. At the very end of 2 Samuel 23, I wish I had a slide up, I I apologize for that. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, at the very, very end, it's fascinating, I I think. Uh, Again, in verse 39, there's a name that we recognize there. 
In verse 39, it's short. It says, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. The end. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. It's a... It's fascinating. It's mind-boggling to me. At the very end of the 37 names is Uriah the Hittite, because again, Uriah loved David too. David, you remember, called him back from battle because he had slept with Uriah's wife, and Uriah's wife was pregnant with a baby, and so brought him back, thinking maybe perhaps he would sleep with his own wife. But Uriah was loyal. He slept in the palace on the floor because he was loyal to the king. Why include that at the end of chapter 23? Why was the author, why does the author include Uriah's name in verse 39, the very end of this particular chapter? Do you think that he brings up this story to show us the wickedness of David? I don't think he's trying to recount this so that he would rehash, again, the hurt and the brokenness of David's life. But again, I think the wickedness of David should always lead us to the grace of God. There's grace even there. Even in the military list, one runs into grace. It's not intended to remind remind us of the horror of David's sin, but it's a reminder that where sin abounds, my friends, grace superabounds. My friends, though our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. The story of our, the story of Uriah, the reason why I think it's listed here is my third observation. The story of Uriah reminds us that our loyalty can never be to David. That there's a greater son of a great David who becomes our redeemer, the ultimate covenant keeper, the ultimate promise keeper, the one who never goes back on his word the one who is loyal to the very end, the one who is loyal and will be obedient, uh, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, to the point of death, even death, on a cross. My friends, this is the loyal love of God. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he would risk his life that he would risk his life to go and defeat the enemies and come back with living water. 